Vaxi's musical podcast. For some of you, you might remember that it was Ellen Foley who was the female vocalist on the 1977 epic Paradise by the Dashboard Light by Meatloaf. It was released on the album Bad Out of Hell, which would go on to sell more than 50 million copies around the world. And if that's the only thing you knew about Ellen Foley, that's still a pretty good story. But what you might not remember about Ellen Foley is that she was also an actress who not only starred in the hit TV show Night Court, she was also in some of the biggest movies of the 80s and 90s, like Fatal Attraction, King of Comedy, Married to the Mob, Cocktail, and Tootsie. She also starred on Broadway, and if you stop there, that would still make for a pretty interesting interview as well. Except Ellen Foley also sang with Blue Oyster Cult, Joe Jackson, Ian Hunter of Mata Hoople, and a band known as The Clash. In fact, she recorded stuff with The Clash a number of times. In fact, she was not only the one-time girlfriend of Mick Jones, it's said that she was the inspiration for the 1982 Clash hit, Should I Stay or Should I Go? And on her 1981 album Spirit of St. Louis, all four members of the Clash served as her backup band. She's recorded five solo records over the years, including her latest release, Fighting Words. And like so many other things in her life, the new album is the real deal. This is my conversation with the insanely talented Ellen Foley on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can. How are you? Very, very good. Thank you very much for doing this. I appreciate it. Sure, sure. Congratulations on the uh, the new record. I had a chance to listen to it over the last couple of days. I really, really like it. So uh, that's great. Thank you. And I do want to ask you about that in a little bit, but I I have to kind of get something off my chest here. Nineteen seventy seven. I'm in trouble. No, you might be. You might be. Nineteen seventy seven seventy eight. I was in uh, junior high school. And we had yeah um, okay. Don't rub it in. I know, I know. Well, we had school dances every Friday night, and uh, yeah. it was in the in the cafeteria, and 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 every dance required three songs. These these were required songs. They were "Stairway to Heaven," there was "Free Bird" because you know those two songs alone are almost a full half hour of slow dancing with girls. And did then, you live in the South? No, I lived in in New England. Oh, okay, because Freebird, you know, I, I was... I, I know, but any any chance to play a 13-minute-long slow song was all that really mattered. And then okay, the, I, I understand that. And, yes. and the third song was Paradise by the Dashboard Light by, by Meatloaf. I met my first yeah. girlfriend during that song. She broke up with me two year, two weeks later after that song. Every time, oh, no. every time I hear it, I get this you know post-traumatic stress reaction from having my heart broken at the age of, of 13. Of and she said, she said, I'm waiting for the end of time so I can end my time with you. Yes. Is that how she broke up it was, with you? It was almost like word for word. And, uh, and That's so sad. I'm sorry. So in, indirectly, you helped sink that ship that night. So I don't know what the oh. two. Thank you. But do you or... look back on it and think it's good? I mean, are you married? Or I, have, I, you, have I, you recovered? I have recovered pretty well. I am, I am married. Everything worked out okay. <laughs> but at the tender age of 13, it's just a... Uh, you know, oh, it, man. it didn't take much, but I'm I'm not I'm not going to hold any hostility toward you if that's okay. Okay, don't blame me. I don't blame I, Jim Steinman. He wrote the goddamn song. So I, don't blame I me. Totally blame him. But you know, it, it's it, it's interesting because I've spent so much time over the last couple of days, you know, researching your career and and everything you've done. And 
know, if you were to just focus on, you know, that one album and in particular that one song, you know, that would make for a pretty good story all by itself. But, you know, the more I dig, the more I realize that, you know, Bad Out of Hell was just a, a brief blip in your career. And there's actually much more interesting things in your life beyond, you know, the maybe the biggest song you ever recorded. It's, it's, it's actually a fascinating story of someone who has kind of been a little bit all over the place in, in a way. Yeah. Well, thanks. But, you know, I never see paradise as a blip. I see it as a, uh, a portal to pray, you know, in the music business to everything that ever happened to me. I, I, a lot of people saw what I wrote when Jim died. I said, stop right there. Those two words, you know, gave me career and my career and, and shook up the, the world, you know? So yeah, I I see what you're saying, but I could never, I could never uh, minimize the effect that that song had on my life. I read something, and you can confirm whether this is true or not. You recorded that song in a single take. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, what did I know? I had never (laughs) sung on a record before. I'm like, oh, you better get this right, man. And uh, and and you know, I I created a scene. You know, I got meat to come in and sit in a chair, so I wasn't just (laughs) singing to my imagination. I had meat sit in a chair and. And I sang it to him, and that was pretty much that. I mean, you know, when you put it into that perspective, to to have nailed it in in one shot, and then have this song, you know, listed in like maybe like one of the top ten, top dozen songs of all time. That's amazing to me that you were able to do it. Just because I mean, there are some singers that'll take two or three weeks to get a, a vocal part done correctly. Right. Well, as I got older and more experienced, I, I don't think it ever was, was ever two weeks, but I don't, maybe I did do things in one take, but I mean, that, that was, uh, that was definitely beginner's luck. And somebody who, uh, who, uh, whose voice was really young and really, um, ready to do it and supple and, and had no problem hitting everything. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Just. It's just the way I thought you were supposed to do it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, never having sold, never having been a part of an album that sold 50 million records, it's hard for me to say for sure. But you know, you talk about that song and that album being kind of like a, like a, like a portal, a, you know, a, a gateway to the rest of your career. How did you, going back a few years, I, you had met Meatloaf and and Jim Steinman. If I'm getting this correctly, as part of the touring company of National Lampoon's Lemmings. No, not Lemmings. They were there were two Lampoon shows. There was Lemmings first. Lemmings was sort of a, a takeoff on Woodstock. People did all sorts of impressions. I think that might be where Belushi first did Joe Cocker. Right. And uh, but um, National Lampoon show was just a sketches. I don't think they were connected in. In any way, they were just what they thought was funny, and let's put it up on stage. Um, yeah, so it was the National Lampoon Show. When you met these guys, and, and obviously they were probably talking about music, and certainly Jim Steinman you know, is, a, is, is a hell of a songwriter, and, and Meatloaf's got a, an amazing voice. So, so when you're introduced to these guys and they start talking about uh, you know, wanting you to help them on, on a record, were you aware of the kind of songs that they were putting together or were you just kind of going in there blind? No, I would say I heard 
you know, um, there, when you do a show like that, you're traveling around in this little blue van, everybody. And Jim would always talk about his lyrics. And it was funny because even after, even when we got back to New York, he would be working on lyrics and he would talk. He would call you at two in the morning and say, oh, what do you think of this? And who am I going to criticize him? And so I said, that's great, Jim. That's great. He goes, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, he needed, you know, he, he, he didn't need it, but it was nice for him to have friends who could give him support. But so that was, that's what it was like on the road. He'd be, he'd be talking about his, you know, the lyrics and you, we, I got a concept of, you know, this thing was, and then, yeah, like I said, there was time and every place we would play would have it. Cause he was the band. Okay. It was just a piano. So there would always be a piano right. that uh, was available. And he, yeah, he would be working on the songs and we would be singing with him and before, you know, after there was a sound check or when we were just hanging around. So I heard the songs and I got the drift of, of what it was, you know. It was like it was like post Springsteen but darker and on steroids and more extreme. Yeah. Certainly in its the lyrics and the the delivery of it. And and uh you know, I always say I was just around uh, in the right place at the right time, but I don't remember the exact details of how, how right. Paradise came about. I'm sure he had it in his mind this was going to happen because this is Steinman's, you know, the definition, the archetypal, you know, idea of the, the teenage, the teenage uh, sex, lust and sex. So, yeah, I'm not saying he saw me and wrote the song. I think that. <laughs> I was there, and uh, I was singing it. Obviously, the the uh, the Lampuncha was a review, and there were songs. There were original songs. I wish I could say who wrote them. Probably the Lampoon guys, people, guy named Paul Jacobs, people who had worked in it before. So anyway, obviously, he heard me sing and uh, brought me into it. I'm sure had me sing along while he was developing it, and and. Uh, and and you know, Meat and I work together on it. My impression of uh, of Jim's. I mean, I've interviewed Meatloaf before. I've never never had a chance to do, to talk to Jim Steinman. But my impression of these guys is that these are pretty. Their music, as epic as it was, kind of reflected who the two of them were. And in a way, much of their own personality was larger than life. And and I get the sense that you would have had to have been at that level too for them to want to you know incorporate you into this into this music i mean you certainly had a powerful voice but to to work with guys like this and then you know, add a todd rundgren on top of that i mean that's there's a lot of personality going on in a, in a studio with those right. guys right exactly obviously it, it was the voice and you know i really got jim's humor and meet and i were were good friends and then of course when you meet todd it's like Okay, take a breath. It's Todd Rundgren. But then, you know, then it just becomes, you know, we're, we were all up there. I mean, the band uh, in, included Kazim Sultan from Todd's band, uh, Roy Bitten, uh, Wein, Wein, Max Weinberg. I mean, it was awesome. And we were all staying in, in up there, and it was in the middle of the winter. So it became kind of a a, a winter camp, and, and you got to know everybody. and. And we we rehearsed. There was rehearsal period, like like it was a show rather than everybody just going in and, and playing on the record. So there there was a period of time that you know you got to 
you got to know everybody and 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 they heard me and you know there was a in some cases a respect that was developed but you know Todd was incredible that was amazing yeah so once the thing was was done and it took a little while for it to you know for people to to you know to put it out and to release it um there had always it took been a long time it took a real long time which is strange because you know based upon just if you were just going to put a needle on a record and listen to it you say all right this is a this is a hell of a record but then you flip the back cover over and you know it it shows meatloaf and i know there's like a there's been a lot of i mean i don't want to say stereotypical or maybe he's like the anti-stereotypical rock star he's not some he's not an individual that you would necessarily you know say oh there there's a guy who's got you know, a star quality look in a, in a very superficial right. business. Right. That did hold him back as far as the release of that, of that record. No, well, uh, it held, yeah, I won't say the way he looked, really held, held it back. Uh, the record, what, what was held back was getting signed, you know, originally uh, auditioning for all these record companies who were putting out at the time, you know, the Eagle Eagles and Fleetwood Mac and stuff like that. It was the late seventies who, who just didn't get it and who were a little bit terrified of it. And, uh, you know, said everybody, Hey, don't go, don't go near this thing with the 10 foot pole. And, you know, because it, I guess it was, you could say it was the physical persona because these were very small rooms that we were in, a rehearsal studio in New York called NOLA, N-O-L-A, and a very small, you know, rehearsal space, piano, me, Meatloaf, Steinman, and Rory Dodd, who is, has gone, went on to become like an incredible um, studio singer. And, and but the, obviously the predominating image was Meatloaf, you know, three, three feet away from them. And it, it was huge. So, but it was the music too. They didn't get, you know, they didn't, it was too much. It, yeah, you know, people who wanted to be safe and keep doing what they were doing until we met Steve Popovich, who eventually signed, signed well, the group. And, yeah, and I imagine that uh, all it takes is the, the first few million copies to be sold, even if it takes a, a long time to get there, had to be a little bit validating for everybody. See, gee, I don't know what you were, te- I don't know what you were waiting for because this thing, is on his way to selling 50 million copies. Yeah, there had to be a lot of record executives who were in trouble after that. <laughs> I would think so. When you talked about that album opening doors for you, I know, at, you know soon after that you you went back into acting. I think you went on onto uh you know to Broadway for a while. And then at some point you decide it's it's time for your first solo record in 1979. And uh, and right. Mick, and Mick Ronson, who played with David Bowie and Ian Hunter from Mata Hoople, wound up producing this for you. How did you meet those guys? I met him through again Steve Popovich. You know, he signed me to Cleveland International. You know, which was his label uh, under the Epic umbrella, and he signed me. You know, because of the Meatloaf thing, and and we worked together for a while making some demos. And uh, and he uh, he signed Ian, so you know it was Popovich. You know had had kind of a stable of people who were working together, and also we Ian and I shared musicians. And I I you know had his musicians on the road, but yeah, it was it was all him. He was an incredible music man. He he wasn't 
he wasn't just, you know, a suit. He was never a suit. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> he did not wear suits. Um, and uh, he he had such a passion. And, you know, he came in there and fell in love with uh, the Bad Out of Hell material that I told you other other record people ran away from. He, he embraced. And um, then did he bring in Todd? He must have brought in Todd. I'm trying to think of who came first. Because Todd came in with a with a uh, a video camera, and he was taping it, he filming it, and he was. Yeah, I remember him just being laughing, you know, sort of delighted and amazed by what what he was seeing. So between these two guys, it was magical because you know they got it. There's a story I, I assume you know with you going you know you back into acting right after recording you know your part in that record, and then Meatloaf putting together a, a uh, like a promotional video before videos were actually really something. And they wind up using somebody other than you, Carla DeVito, winds up lip syncing to your parts. Was there anything to that or was that like a, was it just a, a matter of like a scheduling conflict? No, no, it was a matter of which, you know, if, if I had management or anything might not have happened or, uh, but you know, as you, you know, Carla and I are very good friends now. She sings on my records, so right. I'm not, being negative towards her in any way, it was, it was when um, they put the tour together, and Carla, you know, sang the part or was the the girl on the tour, and they they had this concept that well, she's the one that everybody was going to be seeing on the road, and they wanted people to relate, correlate, and like that. So I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't end up on the video, but. Like I said, had my own record, was on TV, was on Broadway. I mean, I was, I was my, you know, that that uh, that um, period of time for me was kind of amazing because of am- the many, many things I got to do in the many genres, as it were. I would imagine your day planner in 1978, 79 must have lo- looked like an absolute mess. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I was young enough that I probably didn't need a day planner. Now I need... I need it. I need to see it uh, online. I need to write it down. Mm-hmm. I need Randy, my publicist, to remind me fifteen times. You know. So, but back then, I think my brain didn't have the wasn't like Swiss cheese quite as much as it is right now. Because as the nineteen eighties approaching, and you're doing more session work, and you're 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 singing with Ian Hunter, you're doing uh, music with Blue Oyster Cult, and then you all of a sudden you're singing uh, backups with the Clash, and um, you know on on. Two albums, Sandinista and and Combat Rock. How did you get to meet them? I mean, were you introduced to them somehow? I mean, what was the what was the uh, what was the handshake on on that? No, I was you know I was dating Mick, you know, and we had met. I was over there probably in, in December of whatever seventy nine. I was over there to perform, and I went like on a maybe a. Saturday and maybe I went on a Thursday to go see to go see the place and uh, and he, and hear a band and uh, you know I met him there and you know we struck you started getting getting together and you know it was it was gosh I don't know a year later or so that that you know we that uh, the the recording stuff happened. I remember you know hearing about this but never actually getting a chance to. Hear the record, and that's the uh, the Spirit of St. Louis record that you did with all four members 
of the clash as, mm-hmm. your, as your backing band. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I thank God that, you know, Spotify <laughs> exists because I was able to hear those songs and, and it was a really powerful record. I mean, it was pretty easy to identify the fact the clash is right behind you and it didn't sound awkward at all. I mean, your voice was so strong and so, and the songs were good enough. You're like, that it winds up, I think it winded up being a really great record. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, I think that this this record, Fighting Words, is going to get a lot of attention, and hopefully, it'll make people to uh, look back into the catalog a bit. And and like all the punks back then, the kids uh, who are now, you know, middle aged people who were like, "Oh, what the fuck? Hey, all the long speech," you know, will probably might go back and hear it. The Clash fans and. And my uh, my fans, so you know, it might it might have a bit of a life in terms of people paying attention to it. It was certainly different and incredibly unique. It, it, it was, and I think you know, uh, as as far as an historical document, I think it's actually you really interesting because it's not like those guys lent themselves to other people's music all that often, especially back then. Obviously, you have a personal relationship. Yeah, with Mick and with and with the band, but they didn't really make themselves available outside of a small circle of people. Yeah, well, um, I I know Mick produced other people. He produced Ian at one point. He mm-hmm. produced there was a, a a girl band in New York. I forget their name. They were really they were really good. And you know when they had such a a far flung. A uh, group of influences, like a lot of reggae people, like that. You know, I'm I'm sure. Be you know, he after I knew them, he he went into producing. But yeah, it was pretty unusual that they did a whole album with somebody like that. One album that I uh, that I know you worked on is, and it's it's an album that I love was from 1984 with uh, with Joe Jackson and uh, and and Body and Souls, another really big sounding record with a million people in the band yeah well i remember it was really fast um and and uh i thought i got fired from it to tell you the truth but people tell me that i'm on the record so (laughs) okay (laughs) (laughs) why did you why did you think you get fired i did i think i did some stuff and they were like "Eh, i don't think so and they they brought in this 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 woman named elaine caswell so but it was um it, I can't. I can tell you. I I don't have any. I, it's not much I can tell you. You then go back into acting again, and then all of a sudden, like all of a sudden, like these big films are coming your way: King of Comedy and Tootsie and Fatal Attraction, Married to the Mob, and you know, all of a sudden, you're kind of going through. You're kind of stepping back from music a little bit, focusing on acting. How did how did the Night Court job present itself? How did how did that happen? Well, I guess after my third album, I decided, you know, that. The record business was, was, you know, not happening for me, and I didn't feel I had support. So, you know, I went back and I said, oh, let me just be somebody's employee. So I guess I got had an agent, got sent, started to get, you know, sent out for things. And the, um, I mean, I had done television in that I did that show, Three Girls Three, mm-hmm. but I sang on it, so that, that was the big hook with me on that, but... I auditioned, you know, and, uh, you know, I have a certain quirkiness that sometimes attracts people, and I think that's what they they like. So that, that was one season, but the film stuff was great. It kind of came uh, one after the other. It was really a cool time, yeah. you know, and then 
before before any of that, the hair movie, which was one of my best experiences ever, ever. Mm-hmm. Singing the song Black Boys. We're in Central Park. Milos Foreman, the choreography of Twyla Tharp. I mean, that was one of my funnest, to use a non-English word, day. It was, <laughs> remember, it was in the fall. It was, yeah, yeah. So that, and then all these other movies. I mean, I, I would say I have small parts in big movies, which is, is kind of great. But you're also working with notable people on, on these films. I mean, everybody from... Absolutely. I mean, everybody from Dustin Hoffman to, you know, Tom Cruise to, you know, you know the, I mean, the king of comedy guy, Robert Michelle De Niro. Pfeiffer, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, just amazing. And the directors, I mean, you know. Yeah. That that I was able to get work with these with these powerhouses. I mean, yeah, I loved Milos, but my favorite of all time was Jonathan Demme. Because mm. he was such a rock and roll guy, and and his set was was so cool and fun. I mean, you, I don't know if you've seen Married to the Mob recently, but but just to be able to do that, somebody giving you the opportunity to be so out there, <laughs> which we were, you know. I mean, the the hair and the uh and and the costumes kind of did a lot for us, but but to be able to play those characters, that was very great. You talked about uh, always spending one season on on Night Court. And obviously, it's a, it's a show that was was on for nine seasons, and 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 Marky Post winds up replacing you on that show. I assume you you saw the news uh, this week yeah, that, that she had I just did. died. That's I a, did. Very sad. Yeah. Did you? I mean, did, certainly is. My understanding is that the producers of that show wanted her in that role to begin with, but she had a contractual obligation to the Fall Guy. Was were you ever told that this was going to that 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 was the case that they they wanted her first or? No, no. Here's another case where I get fired. <laughs> I remember I did the season and I was kind of like, eh, yeah, I'm a little bit of fish out of water. I don't know. Wearing the wearing the lawyer suits and, you know, uh, trying having to try to do this material. I went back to New York and I put together a cabaret act and it was really successful. And my agent came back, uh, came to the show. And I was talking to a bunch of people. I was running around. I was having a great time. I finally went to talk to her, and she said, oh, you've been fired from my court. I'm like, what? <laughs> Holy crap. But, you know, of course, I was sad and felt rejected. But then it was a relief because I got back to to doing the stuff I did, which is, you know, I, I did. I, I, I went out to San Diego and originated the part of the witch in the uh, even Sondheim's Into the Woods, which is like up there with my top top three uh, accomplishments, I think. Wow. It was unbelievable. Then I went back and did it on Broadway, and I did another show in between. And that takes me up to 1989, 90, 89, when I met my husband and got married and had a kid. And and you've been together <laughs> for 24 years. So that's, that's uh, or 24 25. years, is 31. 31. My, my math skills are terrible. But, Do uh, your math, friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know how it is. Once you get to a certain age, math just doesn't doesn't mean that much anymore. You just hey, I was always bad at math, and now, I mean, if I try to to t- you know add two numbers together, uh, to it doesn't happen. Yeah, I'm, so I'm I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna blame you because I can certainly sympathize. No, no, I, Believe me, I'm I'm the same way. I'm counting on fingers and toes half the time, anyway. So yeah, but but yeah. but nevertheless, it's it's a long time to be to be married and in show business. And you know, and I know he's 
you know, he's done things too. And uh, marriage is hard by itself, but you, know, you add a lot of other things where, you know, your time may be, you know, more valuable than maybe more traditional relationships. It, it must make things a little bit strained or at, at some point, or does he just like seeing you got out of the house? Well, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it was a little, I mean, for years I didn't do anything. And mm -hmm. then when I went to do this show where I met Paul Faglino, who writes all my material, um, in, in 2008, you know, I, then we recorded an album, then I did some touring, but our kids were older. And now uh, my husband is a little nuts. We have two dogs and we have sort of a young dog and he's always like, you can't leave because of the dogs and blah, you know, but, so, but anyway, I'm working, I'm working that out because I plan to, uh, I plan to, I'm doing, starting to do gigs around this record. I, uh, you know, things I want to do. So this period of time right now is going to be, to me, the most important uh, career time that I have had in a long time. I, I do want to talk about the uh, the record. Um, you know, fighting, I hope so. Fighting, oh, That's why we're here. Absolutely. Fighting Words. It's it's your first record in a, in a, in a good long time. Um, mm -hmm. and, and like you said, you, you've been, you've been busy living your life and doing other and other things. What, what made now the time to start working on a new record? Um, we did, Paul and I did a record in 2013, uh, called, um, about time. And we, we put that out and we played around New York and we did some stuff, but you know, I didn't have sort of the support I do now, you know, like it with my publicist who's getting me out there like crazy. And then I I hooked up. Uh, no, I, I not hooked up. That's not that's the word a kid kids use. It's <laughs> not right. Um, I got uh, what's the word involved with a guy in Belgium named Luke Standert. Uh, in actually 2009, he did a thing called Song City, and this was kind. Of, this is when there was MySpace, and this guy writes me out of the blue, and for some reason, I thought it was okay. I had I I got a good feeling, so I I flew over there and did this thing. Uh, I had never met him, but I, I I Garland Jeffries and Elliot Murphy had anyway. So I met him, and then uh, after this uh, about time record, he started booking me uh, in in Holland in Belgium, and I went over there from from 2015 for about four years, you know, uh, on and off doing shows and it was great. I, he put together a fantastic band. I mean, this, these musicians over there, they, they're like studio people. Mm -hmm. So did a bunch of gigs. So, so I wasn't concentrating on doing another record because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know if, if that had been the right move. And in the meantime, Paul was writing these songs and uh, he kind of had to twist my arm to sit down and pay attention. I mean, we did, I mean, it was years, five years or something, you know, I'm up in my house in the country now where I've been basically for 15 months, but he would come up here. We would work on demos. We would uh, do stuff in the city, just he and I. And, uh, you know, finally got this, this group of songs that, you know, he was persistent and he, he's got a very, he's, he's got a engineering uh, degree from Columbia. So he's got a very organized mind. He's, he, he made, Track, send it out to all the musicians. We were, it wasn't a band in a room. It was kind of like people do things now, but we did it a few years back and made these tracks. And he brought it to my, uh, 
to my house and I did the vocals. And it just, you know, it, it, it had to look at it and say, is this something that's going to, uh, that I, something we want to um, release and put out there. And luckily we did because yeah. everybody thinks it's a fantastic record. It's a, it's a, it's a great record. There's a couple of things about it that I think are very cool. Like you said before, you're singing a duet with uh, Carla DeVito, which I think is very, very cool considering yeah, you know, what, what people may perceive as, you know, the, of, uh, 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 I, I don't, I don't uh, like, of course, yeah, no, tense relationship. But uh, but I think that's 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 wonderful that uh, one you are friends and the two, you know, you're collaborating together on music. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, me too. I feel great about it. I feel great about her. She's she's a wonderful person. The other thing that's on the on the record that's uh, I don't really know if it's, if it's a, a surprise, but you sing a Jim, uh, Jim Steinman song that was on Bad Out of Hell, Heaven Can Wait, uh-huh. which, which was not. It, yep. it, you were not on that track uh, back then, right? No, but I had sung it before the Bad Out of Hell record came out in a in a musical and a show that Jim did. We did it at the Kennedy Center in D.C. It was called Neverland, which Jim has you know write, been writing about Neverland. You know he 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 did it. He did a version of it in college. You know he loved that the um, the story of the lost boys uh, and it was Neverland and I played Wendy. Mm-hmm. Sort of the mother goddess virgin character, and saying heaven can wait in that show, and I've always sung it ever since. Whenever I had a band, or you know, did an act, or any any anywhere that yeah. I have ever sung, it's a, it's I a, have I have uh, sung that song. It's yeah. a great version of it. I mean, it's, it's it's a really beautiful you know performance of that of that song. Really nice job. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And so the uh and the other uh, song is I'm just happy to be here. It's just a it's it sounds like almost an autobiographical song from you. Yeah. Well, that's 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 kind of what Paul did. It was a little out of his regular wheelhouse cuz he's, you know, he's he's got sort of a, you know, cynical but not cynical view of things sometimes and and funny and sarcastic, but but this is really a sincere uh telling of of two people looking back on their lives and and being really happy to be here where <laughs> where they are right now in their lives and and discussing it with each other. I, I think the thing that's 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 wonderful and, and to me most obvious here is that, you know, your voice just sounds like it just stepped out of 1977, 78. And mm-hmm. it doesn't sound like wow. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it's aged very much. You know, maybe there's a little tweaking here and there to help you out. But I mean, I think. I think it sounds. But not a lot of tweaking. There's I don't think, Not a lot of tweaking. No, okay, I think, we didn't have a super super high tech situation. I mean, maybe in the mix. I mean, yeah. No, I always like reverb. Yeah. You know, some some echo and reverb always helps you along. So I always have that. I think. But some, I, I, you know, I do my best to keep my voice in in good shape, and I think it. I think my voice does sound pretty young when I hear it. It does. I mean, which yeah, I'm really I, happy about. I, I, I think you know sometimes when you hear you know, a voice that's being you know manipulated electronically, you can kind of hear it, you can kind of see it, but I try. Yeah, I, you can see through it. Yeah, and I and I and I tried to listen for it on 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 the new record. I'm like, no, I think that's probably how she's still sounding, which is which is pretty remarkable considering you know the length of your career. There's a lot of people 
you know, who, and the who, length of my life. Let's 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 let's, well, let's I, be honest. I'm not going to sit here and call no, you. No, I'm saying and, and, you and, know, and age you. I don't want to do that to you. I'm saying. <laughs> well, yeah, thank well, you. Well, if, if you're saying thank it, you. then I'm then I'm okay, and I'll leave I'll leave it. Okay. At that. <laughs> Okay, Ellen. It, it really is a very, very good record. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to have the chance to talk to you about it, and and uh, and no hard feelings about being there when I was uh, heartbroken by my first girlfriend. I won't, I won't okay. hold that against you at all. I mean, if, there, if there's anything I can do, I mean, if you have her email, <laughs> if you have her on Facebook or anything, you no. know, I, I can confront her and no. and uh, and tell her, you know, the big mistakes she made. And <laughs> but I'm sure she knows that. I'm sure she's been kicking herself all these years. Oh, so. I'm. I'm we sure can, we can we we can feel good about that. Oh, I'm I'm sure she's just loaded with a lifetime of regret. <laughs> <laughs> of regret. <laughs> Alan, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. Best of luck with the record. I, I do appreciate the time today. My pleasure. Take care. You too. The name of Ellen Foley's new album is called Fighting Words, and it is now available just about everywhere. If you like the show, please feel free to share it, review it, tell all your friends. You can email me at Bax at rock102.com. I'd love to know what you think, and thanks for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.